Lord, thank you so much for watching over us in this last week. Thank you, Lord, for the delightful weather, the sun, the, the, the birds, the, all of that, just really lifting our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for your preserving and protecting us. We thank you for our friend Fred as he continues to get stronger and stronger and recover. Uh, we thank you and continue to thank you for Cece and her growing stronger and, and recovering from what her bout that she had that was so, so, um, such a strain on her. We pray, Lord, that you'd be with us as we move into this class, as we talk about John Calvin, as we learn from this uh, earlier pastor and, and uh, maybe be encouraged and informed and may it just help us to be uh, a, a better, uh, great, uh, have a greater perception of our own history and our own background. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. I love the fact there's people in here. I put in that thing in the, in the church letter, you know, we're going to do John Calvin. I expected crickets, you know, so here we go. So we're doing this series, Why Do You Do That? We've covered worship, church government, complementarianism. Um, we're going to look at catechisms and church membership in the next few weeks. Uh, but today we're going to talk about who is John Calvin. And the reason why we're going to talk about who is John Calvin, because you hear John Calvin being quoted on occasion at Heritage, and then our, our background, part of our history, and so forth. And I, uh, I think you'll understand, hopefully, when we get done, you'll realize the influence that John Calvin had actually on lots of different denominations, okay? Lots of different streams within the Christian tradition. And knowing that will help uh, as you're listening, as you're thinking about people and, and other uh, church cultures. So remember, our main reason for doing the class is those who come would feel like, uh, wow, these people really care about Scripture and, and so forth, and also to help us to be able to pass on um, what we know and what we believe to others. So John Calvin and the spread of the Reformation. Now, I stole part of this PowerPoint from somewhere. I don't remember where I got it from. I uh, looked all over, and then I made it my own. So there's, there's back and forth in here. But this was uh, very helpful for me to do this. And so the Reformation, thinking back to the early 1500s, the Reformation spread throughout the northern part of Europe during the 16th, and, uh, 16th century. And you see the outgrowth, especially the influence of, Calvin, of Calvinism, if you want to call it that, all the way through the various streams. There's more you could put in here. In England, the Puritans and the Anglicans, or the Church of England. In Scotland, the Presbyterians. Scandinavia, Norway and Sweden. Uh, the Reform and Switzerland Calvinists. The Huguenots in France. Um, and then the Netherlands Reformed. And there are others as well, but that just gives you a sense. Um, the nation-states of early Europe began to align themselves along Protestant and Catholic lines. As the Reformation began, it was actually kind of the culmination of lots of turmoil that had been cooking and bubbling for some time. And, um, and so Europe actually began to splinter off, began to splinter or shatter, uh, which is why we have the Europe we have now, by the way. It's part of why we have the Europe we have now. And so, uh, but each of the different regions began to affiliate themselves with particular parts of the Christian tradition. Okay, I'm going to give you a map here in just a minute to show you what I'm referring to. So there was a, as a growing lack of religious unity, even amongst the Reformed, that would be, here I'm including Luther, Zwingli, and so forth, the Reformed, the Reformation folks. There was a lack of religious unity. They so many things they would be in agreement on, and then there would be three points they would never ever agree on. And one point, Luther writes something on a, on a piece of wood, and he starts pounding it and says, I will never compromise this. And Zwingli, you're of the devil, and all that stuff. It was wonderful. It just sounds very contemporary, actually. Um, but that's one of the things to keep in mind is that the, the splintering. Um, our forebears in the Reformation were not always good role models on how to actually be charitable and gracious to one another. There was no magic unity in the Reformation. We need to remember that, okay? Because sometimes we present the Reformation as if it was this one overwhelming united flow and it was nothing like that, okay? It was very, it was very human, actually. Uh, so, but with the splintering of Europe and then each nation-state or, or area aligning itself with 
various Protestant lines and Catholic lines, what you begin to have is more and more of a melding or a sense of rise of nationalism that's associated with religion, religious divisions. Okay, you start having this nationalism, so all Germans are Lutherans, and all French are Catholics, except for the Huguenots. You know, and so, but you have this rising of the nation identified with a particular uh, religious stream. Does this sound contemporary? Anybody think of somebody maybe right now who sees himself maybe as like the savior of the Holy Rome, Holy Russian Church or something, right? Okay, and that's the melding of, of the faith with nationalism. It really ends up, it becomes hard to distinguish the two, and you see a lot of that going on in the Reformation. That's just a little, little background. Here's the map. Um... As things began to align, now they're just, the map is just primarily looking at the Christian side. Here's the Ottoman Empire. It would actually be Muslim, but the Christians in there would have been uh, Eastern Orthodox, the same thing up in Russia. And then you've got your various uh, Catholic states, your different Protestant states, some, Ca- some Calvinist, some Anglican, and so forth. And then, of course, you've got uh, Islam in here, and what you have is you have also during the Reformation, you have this push of the Ottoman Empire, which was in Turkey by this point, and still pushing and pressuring Europe. In fact, there will be times when the Reformation stops because they all, all the Christian streams will start uniting together to fight the Muslims that were starting to invade again here and there. Okay, so it's a, it was a really, really cataclysm, or not a cataclysm, but a traumatic season. Uh, that century was because there was so much fighting going on. And you got to remember, too, what happened just about 100 or 200 years before the Reformation. Anybody remember something really earth-shattering? The Black, yeah, the Black Plague, right? Just, just 150 years before the Black Plague, which left something like a million and a half plague orphans, right? It's a, I'm telling you that there's any civilization anywhere is a miracle of God's common grace, all right? Because there shouldn't have been any civilization left because you've lost a huge section of your adult population and all you have left are kids roaming around. I mean, they're vulnerable to all kinds of things. They don't know all the, the ways to do society, to do government, and all those things. And then they're easy prey for other aspects as well. That too sounds a little contemporary right now. So that's kind of the sense, gives you a sense of the dividing or what's going on with the, in Europe and stuff. Yes? No. No, it was already, that's what I was saying earlier, is that this, the Reformation comes uh, after the, the Europe and, and um, the region's been percolating. It's been just boiling. There's all kinds of things under the surface getting ready to, to erupt. You've got, you've got civil leaders pushing against Rome, you got Rome, the Pope, trying to, to assert political power, then you've got all kinds of divisions within. What are you talking about? The Huguenots, that right there? Yeah, that's the French Calvinists. Yeah. This one here? Okay, yes. Oh, the Hussites, just a, 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 a yeah, fall, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to look at the map and listen to John, too. Yes, who are the Hussites? Huh? I'm just blind, John. I'm a very colorful person, but I'm blind, okay? So, uh, the Hussites, uh, followers of John Huss, but then there's just another segment within within uh, the Protestant or the, the non-Roman Catholic stream of things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, born in the 1400s to Glenn. Okay? Does that help? Okay. Let's talk about John Calvin a little bit more specifically then. Born around 1509, died at 1564. Just do the math. Not a long life. Right? That's what, 50... Five years, something like that, or 60, 65 years. Okay, uh, and I'll tell you that as he as he lives, you got to think about all the political and the social, the uh, uh, geopolitical aspects that are changing in his time. 
things are falling apart. Luther's already, you know, about the time he's uh, an adult, Luther's already begun the, the Reformation, and there's, and you've got the peasant revolt going on. You've got, uh, you just got a lot of different issues. And then you've got to remember, always remember, medicine of the day was marvelous. That was sarcasm, okay? And so we're going to talk about John Calvin's health a little bit, and you'll see why I say that. But he was born in France. He studied law as a young man. It's interesting. Luther was studied law. Calvin studied law. I believe Zwingli, uh, he was a priest. But, um, but at least Calvin and um, Luther and a couple of other early reformers were, had actually studied law. So it's funny because when you read Calvin's Institutes, you're reading the writings of a guy who thinks like a lawyer. You know, and so if you don't like lawyers, I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. And so, but it it does give gave a precision to the way he thought and wrote. Okay, he was very academic. In fact, most people don't remember don't know this, but in his early days, um, he actually wrote a commentary on Seneca, an old philosopher. He wrote a commentary on Seneca. That was, I think, the only non-Christian thing that he's remembered for writing. But a commentary on Seneca. Uh, he was converted to Protestantism in 1533 like it happened in the season his dad got him a um, got him a position in the Roman Catholic Church he was actually ordained as a subdeacon as a young young guy because what would happen is then he would get the he would get the tithe or part of the tithe of his parish would flow to him he'd get a cut of it it was basically a pyramid scheme those of you like pyramid schemes you know it was like basically a pyramid scheme and he was on the bottom rung He'd get his cut, and then it would go up. That's how, that's how parents actually secured some kind of financial stability for their kids so they could go to college and stuff. So he was actually ordained as a subdeacon in the Roman Catholic Church. But somewhere at the, towards, uh, in the middle of law school, towards the end, uh, he uh, is converted to Protestantism. By the way, stop me anytime you have a question. So Calvin worked uh, to further the Reformation and to develop a systematic reform theology. Um, he was already thinking, in fact, does anybody ever have uh, Calvin's little golden book? I forgot to bring it in, yeah. Anybody have it? It's just a small little book, uh, basically a kind of a commentary on the Apostles' Creed kind of Christian approach to things. It has a little section there on Ten Commandments and so forth. Uh, that was the precursor to the Institutes. It's only about... 75 pages long or something like that. And that was one of the first things he wrote. By the way, here's a funny story. Derek one day, this was some years back, was at SNU, Southern Nazarene University, and got befriended this janitor, this 70-something-year-old janitor. And I always appreciated my son would befriend a janitor. That's awesome. Having been a janitor myself before. So, anyway, they got to talking, and they got to build this friendship, and this janitor was telling him, I got a great book for you to read. This will change your life. You know, and Derek's like, well, okay, yeah, bring it on sometime. So about a week or two later, he shows up with Calvin's little golden book. <laughs> so at SNU, I thought, yes, yes, special operations Calvinists, yes. <laughs> it was great. Uh, Calvin, as a young man, ended up, uh, he's finally done law school. He's thinking about Protestantism. He's trying to study, and that's all he wants to do is he just wants to be an academic and try to figure everything out on his own and, and studies and so forth. And so he's running, and he ends up in Geneva. And you may remember the story of William Farrell, who was there, who was an early uh, Reformation pioneer in Geneva. And uh, when Farrell found out that Calvin was in town, he prevails upon him to stay and aid him in reforming the churches. Does anybody remember the story? Farrell sits him down in a very gracious, you know, gospel-oriented way, says, you know, you can leave, but the wrath of God will be on you if you leave, or something like that. It was great. So that's how I do my pastoral counseling, too. So Calvin stays. He, did, he, was, a, he, was, a, he was resistant to... And uh, not necessarily willing, but he stayed with William Farrell, and they stayed for uh, for a few years. But he was run out of Geneva in 1538 over a major conflict with the city council over who had the authority to do church discipline. The city magistrates. So you got to remember, everybody's used to state churches, right? Everybody's used to state churches, and by this point in history, the 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 civil realm thinks that it can tell the church 
who to appoint as bishops and so forth. And so the Geneva Reformed were used to that kind of structure, and so they want to tell the church who they can and cannot discipline. And so it creates this big brouhaha, and, and they run him and William Farrell and some others out of town. And that really, I mean, it broke Calvin's heart. He was, uh, he was pretty upset thinking about bad church experiences, you know, that over the years. And so it really broke his heart. So he goes to, he goes to, um, he goes to Strasbourg uh, for a few years. It was, uh, and then he's invited back, oddly enough, he's invited back about three years later to Geneva in 1541 to, to help them to form, reform a Christian society, if you want to call it that, um, in the civil realm, governed by Protestant civil and religious leaders. Um, funny story is that Calvin liked to preach through whole books of the Bible. And so Calvin left, and I don't remember what the sermon series was, but when Calvin was run out of Geneva in 1538, he was partway through a sermon series on a New Testament book, I think it was. And he left, he went to Strasbourg, and then in 1541, when he was invited back, the very first sermon he preached in Geneva was the next sermon in the series. It was great. I love his I love his commitment to scripture. Uh, Calvin found refuge when he was in Strasbourg. When he was run out of Geneva, he found refuge uh, for three years in the German Protestant city of Strasbourg, where he was a pastor of a church of French-speaking refugees. He lectured on scripture, on the Bible, and he published his commentary on the letter of Paul to, to the Romans. Uh, also, while he was there. He met Idolette de Boer. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. She was the widow of a man that uh, he had converted from Anabaptism. Not the man, but, but Idolette. I believe it's right. And so they were married. They were married about eight years. Um, none of their children survived infancy, but their marital relationship proved to be extremely warm. When she died, he was, he was, he was devastated by all the children. The, the, I think they had three I think they had three kids and they never made it through infancy. And so that really hurt him. Hurt him. But then when Idolette died, he was, you could just tell when he was writing about her that he was really a, impacted by her. He, there was a warm relationship between him and Idolette. Um, so there's a, there was a plague going on in Strasbourg and throughout, and so she survived that plague. There was lots of plague, lots of plague. She survived the plague when it ravaged uh, Geneva, when he went back to Geneva, excuse me. And then an idol that died after that, uh, a lengthy illness in 1549. Now, on her deathbed, she was patient and her words uh, were edifying. She said, O God of Abraham and of all our fathers, in thee have the faithful trusted during so many past ages, and none of them have trusted in vain. I also will hope. That was from um, um, Shops history of the Christian church and just pulled that out of there. Just a really warm relationship he and she had and he was really impacted. He never married again. You may see this picture, this uh, stone. Can you all see that? This carving. Right, this is the great Geneva Reformation wall in Geneva, Switzerland. This is William Farrell. There's dates over there. This is William Farrell's John Calvin, Theodore Beza. Uh, who was kind of a transition uh, towards the end of Calvin's life and then kind of led after Calvin died, and then John Knox. The only thing that's missing from John Knox is his broadsword that he carried under his uh, gown, but I don't know what to do with that. So. But if you ever see that wall, um, those are the four foundational Protestant, four, our four foundational Protestant reformers, and it's still up in, in uh, Geneva. Look at, the, look at the faces. Can you see the faces? They all look really But they lived in a time when probably Ur was probably pretty normal. So Calvin's influence. Calvin was a brilliant scholar and preacher. Calvin uh, wrote extensively, and then, but not, didn't just write. He also did some other... Uh, I'll get into some of the things that he did. Uh, but you have a lot of material that Calvin actually authored, whether he authored it verbally and it was transcribed, or he actually wrote it himself. Um, and this is in a day when you didn't have uh, word processors. I'm always amazed. Or typewriters. 
He worked to understand the scriptures, communicate the truths of God. Uh, he established education in Geneva, where he, uh, education was stressed. He wanted intellectual vigor. He wanted education based on biblical principles. Uh, promoted the fact that hard work, uh, um, praised hard work, rewarded it, uh, saw it as part of God's calling on one's life. Had high moral standards set in place, encouraged and enforced. And then family life was held in high regard and encouraged as well. I mean, he just, he was looking at a whole host of the aspects of the society in Geneva, for example, and he was promoting all those things. He really did love education. He even set up an academy um, at one point that continued on long after he was gone. Geneva was governed by a powerful group of, of lay leaders, of lay church leaders, the, the, the city was actually governed that way, but then also the church. There was so much of a close connection between the church government and city government that uh, you have to try to keep that in mind when you're reading about any of those things to figure out who's doing what. Um, he set up, uh, for example, he set up a... Uh, he set up a, uh, the ecclesiastical government would be uh, the pastors of all the churches in Geneva, and then they were accountable, they actually worked together and they were accountable to the consistory, which was kind of a conflation of the ecclesiastical and civil magistrate, uh, magistrate, magistratory, whatever it's called. Anyways, and so uh, there was all kinds of issues there, and that will come up when we talk about, um, we talk about a heretic who got burned. <laughs> So he promoted the fact that their duty was to oversee and carry out the guidelines set for this new Christian society. They actually reviewed all the church discipline cases. And, um, man, I read some of their stuff that went on. Um, and there's books you can get to. Um, Ronald Wallace. Anything you can pick up by Ronald Wallace on Calvin is really worth it. Uh, but this one is Calvin, Geneva, and the Reformation. When you read through and you realize how much they had to do with church discipline, I mean, you felt like all of Geneva must have been reprobate. You know, I mean, it was just one thing after the other. It just never stopped, it seems. Uh, daily life was regulated according to the guidelines by the church. No, uh, card playing and heavy drinking, missing church services, dancing, being critical of church leaders were all investigated and very often punished. And then you had pesky fellows who would just stand outside the church during the service and taunt Calvin and say, I'm not coming to church. You know, it was just funny things like that. Sometimes, by the way, if you ever get a hold of Calvin's commentaries, a lot of Calvin's commentaries are actually the sermons he was preaching and they were transcribed. And every so often you'll be reading through and you'll go, why did Calvin change the subject or change his emphasis from this paragraph to that one? It's because what they didn't record was that somebody was throwing out a question in the middle of a sermon or taunting him or, 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 or uh, obstructing him in some way and saying, yeah, well, Jesus is not really what you just said. And then Calvin would shift gears and, you know. And so you'll see some of that in the, the, the commentaries because most of them were transcribed from sermons that he was preaching. Okay, and so very participatory worship in some ways. Well, it happened the other Sunday. It was great, you know. Turn that flashlight around. You remember that? Does anybody remember that? That was great. That was great. Uh, Calvin's Geneva. Calvin uh, preached. The preaching of the scriptures was the most important part of, wor of the worship service. Uh, as Calvin set it up, um, he, uh, uh, yeah, that's a good way to put it. So there was lots of scripture reading, and there was uh, usually very long sermons. In fact, he had the preaching going on all week long. There were, there were church, there was churches meeting all throughout the week for uh, week weekday services, and so they had morning prayer throughout the city where there was uh, uh, extemporaneous preaching. Most of the preaching was extemporaneous because nobody had time to write all that stuff out. Um, but. Uh, the Eucharist was no longer the centerpiece like it was in the Roman church, okay? It was no longer the centerpiece, but the way that Calvin sets up his liturgy, I showed you this a couple years back, the way he set up his liturgy, his intention was always that the Lord's Supper should be in the service. And so the service, is, the service runs along and it stops 
abruptly and you go, wait, wait, there's something missing. Yes, because that's what Calvin wanted everybody to know. Something's missing. We need to have communion. That's what he wanted, right? But the Geneva consistory would not let him have communion every week like he wanted. They forced him to do it once every quarter. And so he had a reason for setting up the service the way he did. But the reading and proclamation of scripture becomes a very big centerpiece. And I'm going to show you a picture in a minute where that becomes the thing, one of the big marks within Protestantism. And I'll show you visually how that you could, you could tell that. Calvin returned uh, the Reformation churches to the two sacraments, at least the ones that he had influence over, to the two sacraments of communion and baptism, including infant baptism. The churches themselves were stripped of all the religious decorations of statues and stained glass that told stories and all that. Um, and Calvin, very much like I've told you before, with most of the reformers, almost all the reformers, restored congregational singing. Because that had fallen into disuse. Only the professionals sang. That was the monks and the priests. And so the Reformation restored congregational singing. For some who think that Calvin only encouraged singing of psalms, no, he did not. He actually encouraged the singing of some hymns. We have a few of his hymns in our Trinity hymn book uh, as well. And so he really wanted, uh, but the psalms were the mainstay, but then there were other hymns as well. And so he had a, he um, commissioned a guy, Marl, I think his name was, or something like that, to actually take some of the psalms and start translating them and metering them so they could be sung. And then that's where... Uh, the Geneva Psalter, where it came from. So. so this is how you visually knew that the preaching, the reading and preaching of the word was becoming central in Protestant churches. So the Catholic churches would have, you know, just big spaces if they were big churches, cathedrals, and if they were small churches, it would just, the primary focus in almost all the churches was the altar, Okay. And it would always be a back against the wall, or if you could see it, like we went to a Franciscan uh, 12th, 12th century church in uh, in Germany, and you couldn't even see the altar. It was in a totally separate room, and, uh, and, and, uh, and Virgin Mary was presiding over the whole thing. It was a huge, giant Mary statue. But that actually follows an old uh, tradition, like in Eastern Orthodox. I noticed that when we were in Turkey, we'd go to the Greek Orthodox churches. They would actually have the altar behind a big so you couldn't see it and the, and the whole mystery the mystery was done behind this wall and then the priest would come out and administer the sacrament if they were giving it to the people what happened is as the reformation began there were all these churches already and they were becoming protestant so they had to actually impose a pulpit artificially I mean, if it's made out of masonry who's going to do the reconstruction of that house I mean D would be full time employed for all of her whole life trying to remodel one of those right so what they did is they imposed something like this where you have this high pulpit. Remember, you've got to go up so you can, be, you can speak over a crowd so your voice travels and you can be seen. They would build a pulpit. This is a sounding board or whatever you want to call that above. And what that was for is to focus the molecules of the speaker to a little bit more focused level so it could actually be heard with greater distinction. Okay, And this became pretty much the standard seeing this kind of almost uh, imposed uh, structure on a, inside of a church building. You'd see it in already established churches, but then over the years after Calvin was dead and so on, it became the building model. So has anybody ever been to Jamestown? Right, if you go into the Jamestown, which is all just kind of reconstructed, right, you go into the church, it's really funny. It's like there's this two-level pulpit, and it's it's kind of like it doesn't belong there the way they've got it set up because it's like over here in the corner. Well, that's because of that long tradition from Europe that had started back here with the Reformation. Okay, so we went to an Episcopal church, uh, uh, a choir, uh, uh, a Episcopal church, which was built in the 1750s. They have this three-tiered pulpit, and it's just like this. It's kind of in the corner but it's imposing, but it looks unnatural. But that's the way they built it, right? So it has this long tradition, okay? And so, uh, but this is how you knew the word was becoming central in, uh, in Protestantism, influenced especially by Calvin. Yes?
Uh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes they they'd be behind walls. It's a mystery. The mystery. I mean, that was that's huge. Okay, and so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was the statement. It was the mystery. The mystery is the statement. Yes. 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 And so, um, anyway, so there you go. So, so this is how this is this this was the beginning. So, uh, the Geneva Bible, not translated by Calvin, but by Calvinists in the English-speaking world, fifteen sixties. Uh, they call it the Geneva Bible just because they were influenced by Calvin. But the Geneva Bible, which they, they've started reprinting again for those who like this, uh, who would like to look at it. It's in the old English, really, really old English. makes King James look like a, a hip translation. Um, but it has all these notes in them all the way through. They wanted to, they wanted to make sure that that Bible was accessible to everyone and that people, that the people could actually fathom what they were reading, so they put these little margin notes. Does anybody have the New Reformation Bible or the New Geneva Bible or any, any of those? The ESV Study Bible? Yeah, that's the, that's the history. Right there. That's the history. Coming from the Geneva Bible. Ah, yes. Heretics were sometimes prosecuted in Geneva. I'm going to correct some misinformation. Anyway. Um, 1550s, Michael Servetus, Calvin always gets, gets uh, black marked for him, but Michael Servetus was proclaiming Unitarianism, anti-Trinitarian Unitarianism, okay? And he was caught in Geneva, was arrested, he ended up, ended up being burned at the stake for challenging the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Calvin was the one who said, burn him at the stake. Now, let me tell you the rest of the story with Paul Harvey, Okay? The Roman Catholic Church had a warrant out for his arrest also, and they were going to put him to death as well. So everybody wanted Servetus, and not for dinner. When, Cal when he was caught, when Servetus was caught in Geneva, they wanted to slowly drown him to death. That was the civil magistrates. They wanted him to suffer every second of his heresy, right? And Calvin was trying to be pastoral and merciful. Just burn the boy, would ya? That's why he was promoting burning at the stake. He wanted Servetus, because Servetus did not deny his heresy. Okay? But in, and in a system where heretics were put to death, you've got to remember, Calvin was a child of his age, just like we are. He simply wanted it to be merciful. So burn him at the stake. Get this over quickly. Okay? Um, anyway, anybody ever heard about Servetus? Yeah, yeah. I remember getting my bachelor's degree at a, at a Grace, what became known as Grace University. It doesn't exist anymore, but it's a Baptist University in Omaha, Nebraska. And I remember one of the uh, guest speakers coming in, and when she found out it was a Calvinist, she looked at me and she says, I can't stand Calvin because he burned Servetus at the stake. And I was like, that's not fair. You know, I mean, I could tell you more to the story, but I, she was the guest speaker, not me. Yes. Well, he probably did think that Servetus got what he deserved. Yes, I'm sure he did. Yes. But they took, I mean, they were trying to be, to put them back in their ear. They're, they're used to a state church. They're used to this melding together of the civil and the ecclesiastical. And the civil is supposed to support the ecclesiastical and actually take up the ecclesiastical cause. And so they're, nobody's surprised that the city magistrates want to take out this heretic Servetus. Nobody's fighting that. Right? That's the spirit, that's the age in which they, they lived. What Calvin was trying to do was simply make it merciful. Okay? He never bucked up against it because he actually agreed with that because he was a child of his age. Yes? Yeah. Yes. Yes. There are all kinds of Once you bring, uh, as Glenn was saying, once you once you harbor somebody like that, if he's already got a warrant out for his arrest by the Roman church, which as you saw on the map, 
is a lot of countries, right? And then you've got other Protestant realms and everything. If, he, if they were harboring him, they would end up being everybody's whipping boy, you know? And so they would end up being the target of lots of things. So there was all kinds of reasons why they wanted to, to, to judge him and to put him out of his misery, okay? Any questions up to this point? Yes? Yeah, yeah. Or sometimes they used to put gunpowder in little packs around their neck so when the fire caught it, it would blow up and that would be over. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it'd be, so, yeah. Yeah. All right, let's move on. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about Calvin's Institutes, okay? Just, just a little briefly. Calvin's Institutes actually had several editions. The first, so I, uh, the little golden book was kind of the precursor, but then the first copy of the Institutes was a one-volume, uh, fifteen thirty-six edition. Okay, that's where it all began. Really, was in that fifteen thirty-six edition of the Institutes. Um, by the fifteen forties, fifteen forty-one, he expanded. I think it was two volumes at that point, but that was after people uh, interacting with his first volume and he realizes he needed to expand some things, he needed to make some things clearer. And then the one that you're familiar with, um, it's actually four volumes. I know this is in two, but it's actually four books is what it ended up in 1560, uh, 1559, 1559 for the Institutes. And that's the one that's kind of the standard, but if you ever get around Calvin scholars, they go clear back to the 1536 and say, here's the change that Calvin made in the way he worded this and so forth. Anyway, uh, it's really a, kind of a systematic theology. Um, people often get lost in the fact and think that's the only thing he wrote, but he wrote a ton of stuff. Um, this is a sample. This is a little volume here. It's a little volume, but this little volume here has uh, the Geneva Catechism that he helped form. It's got his uh, treatise on the Lord's Supper. Uh, he wrote extensively um, uh, on his letter to Saladet, Cardinal Saladet that's in there. And then there are other volumes he wrote. And then, of course, there were his sermons that got transcribed and so on. He wrote extensively. And so when you're reading the Institutes, there's probably more to the story than just what you've read. And you would actually have to go through a few of his other writings to make sure that you've got what he's, what he's trying to get at. Uh, Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion is considered the defining book of the Reformation and a pillar of Protestant theology. I think that's an important statement to make. It, is, it becomes the defining work that everybody either agrees with or disagrees with or wants to correct, but it becomes the central piece Okay, that a lot of people end up working around. Like I said, it was first published in 1536, uh, then 1541, um, and its basic premises that argues for the majesty of God for justification and for justification by faith alone. The book shaped Calvinism as a major religious and intellectual force in Europe and throughout the West and in the world. Um, I'm going to end up quoting these, but if you got the letter, if you read the letter this week, I gave you two examples out of that, uh, the pastoral letter. Just to sum of this, here's what Calvin said in chapter, in book two. Um, I one of many things I could have pulled out. This will become still clearer if we... Great. This will become still clearer if we reflect that the work to be performed by the mediator was of no common description, uh, being to restore us to the divine favor so as to make us, instead of sons of men, sons of God, instead of heirs of hell, heirs of a heavenly kingdom. Who could do this unless the Son of God should also become the Son of Man and so receive what is ours as so receive what is ours as to transfer to us what is his, making that which is his by nature to become ours by grace. 
What a great statement. And there's, it, it runs throughout the Institute. That theme actually runs throughout the Institute. You've heard me paraphrase it as, what Jesus is by nature, he makes us by grace. And that's, I mean, just, just think about that. It's amazing, okay? Uh, the same with the wondrous exchange. I've read this to you before, and it's all in that letter, but the wondrous exchange. Uh, there's lots in there. Um, very much like Martin Luther's small catechism, in other words, the Institutes loosely follows the Apostles' Creed in its flow and the subjects that it covers. I mean, it expands, but it actually is following the Apostles' Creed, which was a tradition that had been going on for many centuries by this point. It is, therefore, something of a systematic theology in that each section develops the ground for the next. It has a large section on the Ten Commandments, uh, and it draws heavily from Scripture but he also draws heavily from early church pastors. He's quoting Cyril of Alexandria quite a bit. He's quoting John Chrysostom a lot. He likes John Chrysostom. He quotes Augustine all the time, it seems like. Uh, he makes lots of references to Irenaeus without giving Irenaeus any street credit. Um, that's a joke, by the way. All right, so he quotes heavily from a lot of the early church fathers. And that reminds us, when you read that, it reminds you that never in the Reformation was sola scriptura just my favorite portion of the Bible and my interpretation of it alone. Nor was it just naked scripture. Calvin always interacted with early church pastors. Sometimes he disagreed with them and would tell you. But very often he would say, you know, this Chrysostom was right as he said this, this is what this passage means, you know. And so he's actually getting counsel from, from the communion of saints, if you will. So Sola Scriptura never meant uh, naked Scripture alone. Calvin's whole approach covers far, 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 far more than Tulip. Right? Tulip didn't come into being until people, the Remonstrants, started pushing against Calvinism. And then they said, well, here's Calvinism in a nutshell. Tulip, right? Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. When you read the Institutes, for example, you realize no Cal Calvinism is like the, the 47 point of Calvinism, right? Lots of specific issues in there. A lot of it has to do with worship. All of book four has to do with worship. Worship is a big part of Calvinism, how we do it and why we do it, the way that we do it and so forth. Um, the impact of Calvin and his ideas, Calvin's theology influenced the development of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, influenced John Knox, influenced the Huguenots, who were the French Calvinist Church in France. It influenced, and I am actually put this in here because I saw an uh, Anglican priest say that, deny this, but this is impossible. The Church of England, as is seen in the 39 Articles of Religion and in the impact of Martin Bootser, who was a friend of Calvin's and went to England, and the impact of Calvinism on Anglican sacramental theology, Calvin's influence was over the Church of England. It wasn't just overwhelming everything about it, but it was a huge influence in the Church of England. So even the Church of England was impacted by Calvinism and then Puritan churches in England and America, and you could just start going on. But I just want you to see, even Baptist churches, if they believe in once saved, always saved, they've been impacted by Calvinism, y'all. And so, I mean, his influence is very extensive. Yes. Would you talk, were you going to ask questions? I thought I saw your hand up. You were thinking about it. No, 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 no. Almost every theological work was, was written in Latin first. It was just the practice. That's how you got the scholars to read it. Yeah, I mean, that's what he ends up doing when he gets to 15, 1541. He realizes he wants a larger audience, so he moves away from the scholastic only. Yes, yeah, yeah. So even the Westminster Confession of Faith is actually in Latin. I mean, it's not written originally in Latin, but there is a Latin version that was put out right after it was adopted. So, yeah, it's what you did with the scholars. Yeah. Um, 
The reformed idea of calling or election brought a sense of dignity to all work and worldly endeavors. You, everybody knows about the Protestant work ethic. Uh, Max Weber talks about, uh, but that's from that strong appeal to the middle class. He also, uh, his influence also worked at establishing, uh, this is Calvin himself, also worked at establishing a strong diaconal uh, work in Geneva. He was instrumental in uh, setting up a whole ser- set of diaconal uh, aspects, and it was far more than most of us would ever imagine. He got doctors and nurses. They were part of the diaconal force because you had a whole influx of, uh, of refugees coming, fleeing persecution from other places that needed medicine, you know, and so the, the diaconal aspect included doctors, so that he was actually setting up hospitals or something like hospice, hospitals. Um, uh, just a, it was a big deal for Calvin to have a, this whole diaconal uh, work set up to take care of those who really were in need, and there were a ton flowing into Geneva at that point. Uh, Calvin's model of scholarship encouraged a high standard of intellectual engagement in the Bible and the application of truths. Um, lots of impact from his ideas. And so that's how I envision John Calvin. Right there. So when, 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 uh, when you said that, you know, Luther was the, the army one and Calvin was this very, no, no. Calvin could be pretty punchy too. So he was very well known for that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here's more of the influence of Calvin. He even shows up in comic strips, right? That's why the, the writer of the comic strip, this is supposed to be John Calvin, and that's supposed to be Thomas Hobbes, right? And so that's why the dialogue goes throughout the whole Calvin and Hobbes comic strip series. And so he's had a huge impact, even on our entertainment. Okay, you guys can laugh. Yeah, yep, Absolutely. Anyways, that's a little bit about John Calvin. There's far more we can say and get into, um, but uh, uh, there are things to get to look at if you're interested. If you like, if you like to read, but you don't feel like you could read the Calvin's Institutes, there are other things. But like I said earlier in the in the class, anything you can get by Ronald S. Wallace. He's he's been dead for years, but um, his books have been reprinted more than once. Uh, this is uh, Calvin and Geneva and the Reformation is worth reading just to give you a sense of the historical flavor of John Calvin's time. Calvin's Doctrine of the Word and Sacraments. Um, great book. I really, I've probably read it three times already you know, in the time that I've had it. And the same thing with Calvin's Doctrine of the Christian Life. Okay? Uh, that'll give you a good sense because uh, Wallace draws from not just the Institutes but his commentaries and his letters and so forth to give you some of that background and stuff. Institutes and you wonder why he's being so punchy. You've got to remember, everybody's life was on the line. Everybody's life was on the line. I think people, we forget that, that, that uh, as the Roman church was saying, those are not real kings over there, therefore you can attack that country and wipe them off the face of the earth. They're all Calvinists, there's winglings, the Lutherans over there, kill them all. And the other way around. Sometimes Calvinists and Lutherans did the same thing to everybody else. I mean, everybody's life was on the line, so you begin to realize why Calvin could be so punchy and why he often was, it's the same thing when you read the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was written in the middle of a war, and England's life was on the line. And so that's why some of the language becomes fairly sharp and intense in places. And so don't let it turn you off. All right, anything else on Calvin? Anybody have any questions I can answer in 25 seconds or less? Yes, John.
<laughs> Very good. Anybody else? Any other questions on Calvin or Yes. Uh, Calvin's Institutes, I think, are, and some of his commentaries are. I think we go down there. I think they're there. If not, I'm, I know some people who have some copies you can borrow. Anybody else? Oh, I'm sure there are. It, it was not a major impact on his life. The the commentary was it was just his endeavoring into academia, and then he just went in a different direction. Yeah. Anybody else? Great. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Kind of give you a little flavor for some of that and the history. And uh, next week, to Bill's dismay, we won't talk about Calvin and Hobbes, but we're going to talk about catechisms. So we're going to actually move into catechism, what they are, why we use them, how the biblical background to them, and so forth. And so I hope you'll enjoy that as well. So there we go. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your servants that have gone before us. We think of John Calvin, Martin Luther, Luther. we think of Zwingli, we think of Huss, Wycliffe, we think of many, many others before them, even Bernard of Clairvaux and uh, Irenaeus and so many others, Lord who were faithful to you, some even to the point of death. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would help us, that we ourselves would grow in our love and commitment to you and to, the, to your truth and to our faith and our relationship with you. We ask you, Lord, that you would uh, be with us now as we get ready to enter into the great assembly, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would sing your praises with heart and soul and mind and strength, that we would pray with uh, our hearts and our bodies engaged. We would hear your word proclaimed. We would receive the sacraments with faith and joy. And that, Lord, you would lift our hearts. And we pray for any who may be unbelievers that come through those doors today. As they hear the gospel proclaimed, Lord, that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ even this very day. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.